Leonardo's power! Welcome to uh, Combo Chain. It's a games club podcast about JRPGs. I am Paul M. Davis, and who am I? Who who am I here I'm with? Lisa James. Nice to uh, you know be here again. Yes, welcome back. Welcome back. It's always it's always a pleasure Thank to you. have you. Um, so this episode we are doing uh, the first Xenoblade Chronicles. Um, we're probably gonna have to split this into two episodes because uh the plot is uh very very detailed um but yeah yeah to start out with um yeah how how did you uh come to xenoblade chronicles uh so Lisa? basically um i remember back when it was released solely in uh gamestop so me and my brother were kind of like oh like this, looks, this game looks interesting so we ended up kind of, you know, getting attracted based on that. Um, he ended up buying it and then we started playing and we realized how much we enjoyed the game, like the characters, the plot, the especially the battle system, which was just like a dream for me because I love those really fun, like sort of uh, uh, systems where it's it's not hard to get into, but then there's ends up being a lot of depth and like. And a lot of control on how you can, um, you know, work your characters and skills and, like, have these really great, like, epic battles and stuff. And it had, like, a slightly MMO style, too, which I was uh, very uh, attracted with. So, and I believe I also reviewed this game when it was ported to the 3DS. So, I played it that way as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I feel like my experience was similar. Um, at the time, uh, the Wii was my only console and, um, I was kind of going through like a down phase in video games. I was not like playing a whole lot. And there was something about Xenoblade Chronicles just really, really intrigued me. And, um, when, you know, it was only available for, through GameStop, GameSpot and God, I think it was like really expensive too, wasn't it? It was like $90 or something. I think so it's been so long or either that or it was like full price initially if you managed to grab it um like when they were still just selling it normally or whatever but i think afterwards because you couldn't get a hold of it the price just shot up yeah i think you're right yeah. i think you're right um but there's something about it that just seems so compelling to yeah. me and um yeah like i said this was at the time like the Wii was still my only console and um, I don't know. It just felt like a good like send off to the system. And I, you know, picked it up and I was just totally absorbed. And uh, because I wasn't playing a lot of games at the time, I would kind of pick it up for like, I say, you know, for like 10 hours and then put it down and then pick it back up. Um, And, you know, I think, I think I played it up until 
you know, maybe even like the Wii U is a bit. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I kind of like took, took my time with it, but I don't know. I just got, you know, really drawn into the whole world, uh, of it. And, you know, even though like maybe it's not quote unquote a open world game, like it really did feel to me like really like an open, um, like really well realized uh, exactly and that's why i love it so much too because it kind of scratched the itch that i had when back when i played final fantasy 12 and i was just i love that game too for that reason and then when i played chronicles it had that same kind of feeling like like a, a big scope but it felt like like you said fully realized it actually felt, you know, um, full of things to do and explore. And it's just, it, it had, it's this great kind of sense of adventure almost, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny and it's kind of crazy because that Nintendo didn't want to release it in the U.S., considering that it's become like, you know, maybe not one of their top line franchises, but, you know, definitely one of their, like significant franchises and i feel like this is the end of uh nintendo being like uh we don't really do rpgs exactly (laughs) (laughs) um you know and now nintendo is like oh we do an rpg you know we do at least two rpgs a year yeah basically (laughs) but uh yeah yeah so uh you know kind of development process is kind of is really interesting and you have to kind of go back Go back to the 90s, um, you know. So, uh, you know, since his days in the 90s with Square, uh, designer and uh, developer uh, Tetsuya Takahashi, you know, has been kind of creating these RPGs and, like, expansive sci-fi and fantasy worlds. Um, all the games uh, having the uh, Xeno de- designation. And... Uh, so those include uh, Xenogears for the PS1 and Xenosaga 1 through 3 for the PS2. Um, at the time, uh, his company was owned by Namco. And uh, there's no really direct connections between the three series, even though there's like certain character designs that call back to the previous franchises. And um, they all kind of share like an interest in uh, psychology, philosophy, and... Uh, Kind of in, in particular, Abrahamic, Gnostic, and uh, esoteric uh, Jewish beliefs. And uh, also uh, boobs. <laughs> and the most important thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, Xenoglade uh, Chronicles was uh, developed by uh, Takahashi's uh, company, uh, Monolith Soft, which uh, Nintendo bought in 2007. And uh, Monolith Soft felt they were being uh, creative limited, creatively limited by Bandai Namco. And uh, they had a positive relationship with uh, Nintendo, which gave the, le- belie- the leaders the belief that uh, they wouldn't face similar restrictions as a uh, Nintendo subsidiary. And um, initially, Nintendo uh, first opposed, approached Monolith with the offer of uh, making a new mother. But that was shot down by uh, the series creator uh, Shigesato Itoi. And um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then just kind of a uh, fun fact uh, that is not related to Xenoblade Chronicles. Uh, 
a considerable amount of uh, Breath of the Wild's open world was actually uh, designed and developed by Monolith Soft. Um, I'm not sure how many people are aware of that, but uh, yeah, I feel like you can really see uh, the influence of Monolith uh, yeah. in Breath of the Wild if you really look for yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the concept for uh, Xenoblade Chronicles originated in uh, June 2006 when uh, Takahashi visualized and then constructed a model of two giant gods frozen in place with people living on their bodies. Uh, development began in 2007 under the title Monado, the beginning of the world, uh, though that was uh, eventually rebranded with its current title to uh, reference reference uh, Takahashi's previous work. Uh, the script was work on, worked on by Takahashi, anime writer uh, Yuchiro uh, Takeda, and uh, Nintendo writer uh, Yuri Hattori. And uh, so it was announced in 2009 with its working title and uh, released in Japan and the EU, EU and Australia in 2010. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a uh, cause, of, cause of some controversy that an American release wasn't announced until late 2011 following the uh, public outcry dubbed uh, Operation Rainfall which was uh, in response to the company's refusal to release Xenoblade, The Last Story, or Pandora's Tower to uh, the then-dying then Wii. And uh, The Last Story is definitely something that we should do in the future. Have you played that? Uh, yeah, I played a bit of it. I need, I should actually go back to it, because it, it was a lot of fun. It was a very interesting game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's super interesting. Uh, you know, I I think that's all all I can really say about it right now. But yeah, it's it's a super interesting game, and they did they did some really kind of radical stuff that yeah. kind of shook up like kind of the JRPG norms. So, I agree. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, yeah, um, you know, and uh, you know, there's there's plenty of theories why Nintendo held out on releasing uh, Xenoblade. And, you know, they were never huge localizers of JRPGs at the time. You know, uh, Dragon Warrior, Final Fantasy, and Pokemon being uh, like three ma major exceptions. Um, it's it's likely to me that uh, Nintendo just didn't see the payoff for an underpowered system that was getting its swan song with uh, Skyward Sword. Um, it's also kind of worth remembering that uh, Nintendo's embrace of JRPGs is a pretty recent phenomenon. Uh, likely in part to uh, recognizing the popularity of the genre on the DS and 3DS. Like, I think I think of the 3DS as basically a JRPG machine. Basically. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you, you know, it's like you got Mario, you got Star Fox, you got a few, you know, you got the, you know, standard Nintendo properties, but at the same time, Everything else is basically a JRPG. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and then also, you know, the, the call among uh, fans, you know, for more uh, JRPGs, you know, I think I think that really took a impact on uh, kind of the, you know, chastened core gamer approach that the company has taken uh, since Wii and the fiasco of Wii U. Yeah, absolutely. So, um... So this game, it was released for the Wii uh, in Japan in 2010, in the uh, PAL region in 2011, and in North America in 2012. Uh, it was only available through GameStop uh, online in the U.S. originally. 
And then it was uh, re-released with the launch of the new Nintendo 3DS in 2015. Um, around the time that Nintendo decided that this was a launch-friendly franchise. So that, that was actually a cool little turning point for <laughs> that. So. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so um the hd remake of um xenoblade chronicles is scheduled for the switch in 2020 um and it does say a lot about the game's world building and design that it was able to invoke an expansive world uh, on two consoles with significant graphic limitations and it's definitely one of the reasons why i really love the game so much because it, it, it gives you that sense of wonder and it had to um, work on very strict limits. I think like um, for me, the last time I had that kind of feeling was when I played Final Fantasy 12 on the PS2. And, mm-hmm. you know, considering that console, it's like was even weaker. And it's like it, they were able to put so much into that game. So I think playing Chronicles was kind of like, it really, I, I felt that same kind of feeling of awe, you know, when I played it as well. Um, so oh, I've, yeah. Oh, yeah. And especially, like, on the DS, like, I mean, it looked it looked, <laughs> it looked pretty bad on the Wii, but on the DS, like, man, it looked like ass, but it's still. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's still, I mean, it still had that sense of wonder, you know? It it did. It was still very impressive. That was, that, <laughs> I when I reviewed it, I was, because um, I reviewed the 3DS version, yeah, and it was just so, I was really impressed with how they were able to take that whole world and then still put it on that underpowered portable system, and it just worked really well, so. Um, yeah, yeah, that's remarkable. I mean, I played... I mean, I played both, you know, the Wii version and the 3DS version all the way through. And, yeah. you know, like Fool, I'm probably going to play uh, the uh, HD remake all the way through. Absolutely. <laughs> so, as for the mechanics, um, it has a combat style very similar to MMORPGs with a menu of actions that have cooldowns. Uh, tension is directly related to your accuracy and critical hit rate. It can instant be, instantly uh, be raised at the beginning of battle with a successful battle start affinity move. And tension can be lowered by getting your butt kicked. So <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Get good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you can, con- you can uh, consistently put enemies into the day state, a short period of immobility and vulnerability, but days cannot be achieved without first a topple, nor a topple without first a break. And uh, break moves always appear pink on the arts bar. Uh, the topple moves are green, and the days moves yellow. So it's this really interesting kind of progression of uh, of skills that you have to be aware of in battle, which I like. It keeps things from feeling like mind numbing or monotonous, you know, since mm. you actually have to really consider that in every battle. Um, Pressing up while your central talent arts icon is selected will bring up the attack chain option. If the chain guard is full, you can activate a powerful chain attack at the cost of the entire guard. Uh, the Monado, uh, which is Shulk's like specialty uh, weapon, it's is you know, it's, it basically allows Shulk to see some fatal blows before they happen. 
once the vision takes place, you'll have a set amount of time to try and delay or avoid the attack. I really liked it because it's such a great example of story and gameplay integration because yeah. that future because that future sight is something that is extremely important to the plot of the game and it's used several times. And then the fact that they actually took that and then figured out a way to integrate it into the gameplay itself in like essentially the same way is so it's so excellent. I really enjoy that kind of uh, attention to detail, you know. So mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's really, it's really cool that they were able to find a way to integrate that into the battle system. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It was, it was fantastic. So let's see. So the main, the overall synopsis of the uh, game, um, the battle between uh, Maconis and Bionis. Um, the story of Xenoblade Chronicles starts off by showing the battle between these two gods um, who have been fighting for all eternity. And they continue to fight until Bionis cuts off Mechonis's left hand, and then both of their swords pierce each other at the same time. Over time, life flourished on top of these gods, but the battle waged between Mechonis and Bionis would be continued by their progeny, Bionis's homes and Mechonis's Mechon. Eons later, in Sword Valley, the Holmes army is fighting off a mech home invasion. The Holmes are quickly losing ground and are forced to retreat to Colony 6, where they will put up a last stand. Dubon, I mean Dunbon, excuse me, the current wielder of the legendary Monado, decides to order, ignore orders and engages the Mechon forces with Dixon and uh, Mumcar. Mumcar runs away and plans to return after Dixon and Dunbon have died to collect the Monado. However, he is killed by the Mechon after running into their base. With the Monado, the only weapon that can pierce Mechon armor, Dunbon and Dixon are able to push back and destroy all the Mechon, leaving the Holmes victorious and earning Dunbon the title of Hero of the Holmes. Unfortunately, Dunbon was not fully able to control the Monado, and after the battle, he lost the use of his right arm and almost died from his injuries. And I like that. Uh, I think it's Dunbon, Dunbon who uh, he kind of looks like a uh, cross between uh, Willie Nelson and uh, Hulk Hogan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the only thing I can think of whenever I play this game is like, oh, Will- <laughs> Willie Nelson got buffed up. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, then uh, we jump to uh, chapter one of the game, and uh, it's one year later, and uh, you're in the present, and there's a uh, 18 year old weapons developer named Shulk who's uh, rummaging near Mechon scraps in the Mechon record sites to uh, look for materials to be useful for uh, Colony Nine. He's, crab- he's attacked by a crab-like monster. Rain, a close friend of his, saves him and the two quickly head back to Colony 9. Rain heads off the defense force as his break has ended and um, uh, Square uh, and Vingar, the uh, colonel of the uh, Colony 9 defense force, would not be pleased with him if he was late. Shulk returns, wep- uh, returns to the weapon development lab. Uh, Dixon greets Shulk upon the uh, young teenager's return 
And after the two talk about the Monado for a while, Dixon tells Shulk to go outside and get some fresh air since he spends too much time in the lab. Um, Shulk agrees and heads to look for heads to Outlook Park, a place where he normally goes. Um, Meanwhile, Fiora is bringing some food to her older brother, Dumban, Dumban to eat. After talk, talking for a while, Dumban tells her to deliver some food to Shulk since he would like some. When Fiora worries over him, he laughs and tells her that he will be fine. A hesitant Fiora then heads off with some food for Shulk to the lab. Dixon greets her when she goes inside and he informs her that Shulk is not at the lab. Fiora, surprised, asks where he is, to which Dixon replies, You know where you, where he will have gone. Laughing, Fiora laughs, oh, thanks him, and walks out to Outlook Park. Um, so Shulk is sitting on one of the benches underneath a small tree, looking out to the vast land and water before him. Fiora then comes and sits behind him, handing him the small stack that she made er- earlier. The two of them talk for a while before falling debris from the above forces them to return to the colony. This is because the anti-air batteries, which destroy the record, do not cover Outlook Park. The two teenagers return to the lab where Rain is waiting for them. He picks up the Monado and is then swung around by the sword. Fiora tries to avoid the blade, but it slices straight through her and into a machine next to her. However, the Monado does not damage Homs. She gets angry at Shulk and Rain when the former worries more about the machine than her own safety and at Rain for being so reckless. Rain asks Shulk to uh, go with him to the Magmel Ruins since he needs to obtain ether cylinders for the only mobile artillery unit in Colony 9. It crashed into a row of houses and residential districts and all the ether had leaked out out in accident. Shulk agrees and the two heads the Tephra Cade cave. Uh, Fiora greets them at the entrance, smiling as she throws ether containers at the two of them. Um, embarrassed, the two allow Fiora to join them as they battle the way through Tephra Cave. After arriving at the Magmel Ruins, the three talk briefly before continuing on. After they go outside into a beautiful plain overlooking the whole of Colony 9, the three head to where all the ether cylinders are stored. After Rain has collected what he needs, the trio are attacked by two strange machines, though they're not Mechon. After defeating them, a siren sounds. The three rush outside to witness a horde of Mechon attacking from the skies. Okay, so then from the next chapter, the uh, anti-air batteries try to repel the Mechon, but it results in one of them exploding after a faced Mechon attacks it. Horrified at the attack, the three rush back to try to defend their home. A quick scene is then shown, showing Dunbon limping out of his bed while clutching his right arm in pain. At the main entrance, the three are attacked by a Mekong. Fiora rushes inside to Dunbon's house to check on her older brother, while Shulk and Rain engage the enemy. After they, di- after they disable it, Fiora hurries back outside to tell him that she cannot find Dunbon. Shulk, knowing where he might have gone, runs to the lab, avoiding all the Mekong. Rain and Fiora follow. At the military district, the defense force are desperately trying to fight off the invasion. Uh, Vanguard yells at his retreating troops to keep fighting, but their metal face lands behind. He laughs nervously at the Mechon before blasting it with his gun. The weapon does no damage, and metal face throws a vehicle at him, blocking off the entrance to the lab. Shulk, Rain, and Fiora make it to the lab, only discover that it is blocked off. Rain swears revenge on the Mechon for all of his allies' deaths. 
they remember the mobile artillery unit in the residential area and run off to refuel it. If they use it to blow up the debris, they can go inside the lab. At the crossroads, however, they are cut off by a large group of Mekon. Shulk tells Fiora to run through them and refuel the artillery while him and Rain uh, distract the Mekon. Fiora at first refuses, but then she agrees and uh, runs off. After a short battle, uh, the decoration from above falls and blocks off the short route to where Fiora is. Rain is then attacked from behind and almost eaten by a Mekon. Shulk tries in vain to save his friend, and then Dunbon rushes in to save them and not on hand. He easily defeats all of the enemies, and then the three set off to find Fiora. When they reach the main entrance, Dunbon is suddenly attacked by a violent rush of pain and falls to the ground. The Monado falls a few feet in front of him, stopping halfway along the bridge. He reaches out for it despite Rain and Shulk's protest, then coughs up blood and collapses. A group of Mekon march up to them from the other side, and Shulk rushes forward to grab the Monado. It glows in his hands, and then he sees a vision of a Mekon's laser striking him. He dodges the blow, having seen it, and defeats all the Mekon with ease. The other two men stand up, and the three defeat the rest of the Mekon with the aid of Shulk's new ability to see the future. They hurry along, along the way to the residential district, stopping when they come face-to-face -face with Metalface. It easily defeats them, and the three fall to the ground. Just as the faced Mekon is about to defeat, deal the final blow, it is blasted in the back by a furious Fiona, Fiora, who is now in the mobile artillery unit. Shulk sees a vision of her being killed and shouts at her to run away. However, she refuses to listen and continues to attack. Metalface slices off an arm of the machine, but Fiora continues the assault on it until she is knocked to the ground. Uh, whimpering, she screams as Metalface kills her. Shulk, blinded with rage, screams in anger and rushes forward to attack the Mekon. After defeating it, it flies off suddenly and leaves the three to deal with their loss of Fiora. So um, before I continue, I did do want to point out as well that a cool part of that scene was when Shulk initially saw the vision, he mm -hmm. just saw her death. But then when she actually fought, um, you actually saw she actually did pretty decently against Metal Face, including scratching his face, which was something that none of those three could even close come to doing. So that was, uh, uh to me at least, that was a pretty yeah, no, awesome totally. moment. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, the next day, Shulk is up in Outlook Park, overlooking Colony 9 as he thinks. Rain soon joins him, and then they talk briefly briefly before the scene flashes to when Shulk and Dunbon were talking earlier. Dunbon had told Shulk that he won't cry and to treasure the gift of life that Fiora has given you. Shulk tells Rain that he wants to pursue Metalface and destroy it, and Rain agrees, although he thought that Shulk would try to talk him out of it. They agree to head to Colony 6, since it is the only colony left, and they have may have more information on the Mekong. The two head off and Dunbon watches them from the window, promising that he will join them as soon as his arm heals. Dixon smirks at the two, watching from a wall nearby. Yeah, so uh, after that, uh, Shulk and Rain uh, head off to Tephra Cave, where they discover that one of the doors in the Magmel ruins that was previously closed is now open. They uh, venture into it and soon find some dead Colony 6 travelers dressed in defense armor. 
Shulk and Rain return them to uh, Bios by putting their bodies in a pool of water nearby, while Rain comments how strong the monsters must be to be able to kill, kill them. Um, the two friends decide to rest, taking shifts to keep a lookout for the enemies. While he's sleeping, uh, Shulk has a strange dream and a vision of the future. The dream uh, shows, Shulk, shows Shulk talking to a silhouette figure that tells Shulk that everyone wants to change the future. The Monado can help Shulk do this, but if Shulk finds a true Monado, he can do anything with the future. The vision shows Rain running away from a group of arachnos spiders and then into a giant area. A giant area a spider then stabs him through the chest, killing him. And uh, I, I, I do not like spiders in video games. I do not like spiders in real life, but I definitely do not gi- like giant spiders in video games. <laughs> Yeah, they're always yeah. awful enemies. Yeah, yeah. What does what he? I think it's in Dark Souls too when you have to go up against all those fucking spiders, and it's like this is this is, this is, this is my nightmare. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, Shulk decides not to tell uh, Rain about it, but continues on with more caution for the fear of his friend. However, Rain is captured by a sticky white substance in the cave above, and Shulk. Worried, starts to run after his lost friend. After a frantic, frantic sprint through the cave, Shulk finds Rain shouting for help as the spiders surround him. Uh, the Arachno Cream Queen. Oh, this is even worse. Where there's like a queen spider. Um, <laughs> the Arachno <laughs> Queen then climbs down from above, and Shulk's vision is about to come true as Rain lifts his shield to defend himself. The Monado then glows, and Shulk uses the first new Monado art, Shield, to save his friend. After an intense battle, the Arachno Queen and her minions are defeated. The two go outside the cave, arriving on Kneecap Hill, and take in the beautiful view that greets them. Mekonis is towering in the distance, surrounded by miles of water. Unbeknownst to them, a flying Mekon spies on them and reports to a silhouetted face Mekon. So, uh, then the, uh, two reach Bionis' leg and head to Gore Plain. They see some smoke rising from the air beside a body of water. They head towards it only to find a broken buggy, which Shulk is confused by because since it looks fairly new, so no one would just abandon it. Shulk, after touching the buggy, has a vision showing a young boy being chased by some giant monsters near a small lake. Shulk and Rain search around the area until they find a boy on the ground at the mercy of two giant monsters. Shulk orders them back, and then the two engage the enemies in combat and win. The red-haired boy tells them that his name is Juju. Shulk and Rain introduce themselves, and Juju tells them about the camp, saying that they can stay there as a thank you for saving him. After giving them instructions on how to get to the camp and Shulk fixes the buggy, the three head there. So when Shulk, Rain, and Juju reach, uh, reach the camp, Sharla, his older sister and a trained medic, walks out and scolds Juju for trying to go to Colony 6 by himself before hugging him in worry. After the two separate, Juju introduces Sharla to Rain and Shulk, and she tells them her name. After that, Sharla grabs Rain's chest and demands to know what happened to Godolt, her future husband, since he has the Defense Force uniform on. Rain slowly pushes her off, telling her that he has no idea who she is talking about. Juju tells her that he offered to let them rest for a while, 
and Charlotte uncertainly agrees to the offer. After wandering around the camp for a while, Shulk and Rain go to talk to Charlotte. She tells them that their small group is made up of uh, Holmes and Nopon, and uh, they are the only remaining Colony 6 people. They fled a month ago when the Mechon attacked, and she's horrified to hear that they attack Colony 9. Charlotte tells them that she's a medic within the defense force of Colony 6, and that she's the leader of a small force of people inside the camp. Her colonel, Otheron, and Godolt, a, a soldier with the defense force, are still inside Colony 6. After discovering that Rain and Shulk are heading to uh, Colony 6, Juju pleads with them to take him with them. Charlotte slaps him and then scolds. There you go. Good, uh, good treatment of kids. Um, and then scolds him for being so reckless. He shouts at Charlotte <laughs> that know. they are too scared to face the Mechon and that they will do it and that he will do it if no one else will. Rain tells him off for disrespecting Charlotte, telling him that she, he should listen to her. Charlotte mentions that Rain acts a lot like Godot when he was called Juju Kid. Uh, when he called Juju Kid. Juju grumbles that he will make dinner and then walks off from the group. After the three talk some more, they hear the sound of the buggy running off. The trio rush outside where they discover the buggy missing and Juju as well. Shulk then sees the vision of a giant mechon killing Juju and Charlotte. Rain notices this and tells Charlotte that Shulk can see into the future. Charlotte refuses to believe him but joins the two as they look for Juju. Charlotte mentions that uh, he would most likely have headed towards Ragwell Bridge, which was founded around the same time the first settlers of Colony 9 came, since it was the safest way via buggy to get to Colony 9. The scene then shows Juju angry at his buggy, since he has crashed it at the start of Ragwell Bridge. He continues towards Colony 6 on foot, promising to show them all, Charlotte, Rain, and Schultz give chase to find Juju. They come across the crash buggy at Ragwell Bridge. A little walk later, and they arrive at Spiral Valley. Juju is there, but a Mechon M71, a Mechon with many tentacles, grabs Juju. Charlotte runs towards him to try and save him, but Schultz remembers that this is where Charlotte dies in, a, in, her, in his vision. Um, a new symbol appears on the Monado as Schultz creates an aura around Charlotte. Charlotte has an impressive amount of speed with this aura and can dodge the tentacles popping up from the ground with ease. After a battle with the uh, Mechon, it retreats to the roof of the battlefield. The three climb up and finish the battle. Juju is saved, and the four breathe a sigh of relief. However, Shulk says the Mechon that, it, that they defeated was the wrong one. Uh, not for long, as another uh, faced Mechon appears before them. Shulk and Rain are shocked to see learn that this Mechon can speak. This face mechon, bulky and cloaky in appearance, captures Juju and tells the three, I'll be waiting in Colony 6, but hurry, I'm getting hungry. The face mechon then flies off to Colony 6 with a kidnapped Juju in tow. So, uh, Charlotte is so distraught she faints from the stress and later wakes up in the refugee camp from a nightmare about Juju's death. Rain reassures Charlotte that with Shulk and his help, uh, she'll get her brother back. Determined, Shulk, Rain, and Charlotte walk through the Colony 6 entrance at the other le upper level of um, Bionis's leg. Charlotte points out that the front gate to the colony is probably heavily guarded by Mechon soldiers, so just entering directly through the gate would be too dangerous. She then adds that underneath the colony is an ether mine and that they are connected, so their best chance would be to go through the mines. 
The three explore the ether mine until they run into Ultheron. He reveals that Gadult disappeared after a failed surprise attack with only his rifle left behind. He goes on saying they take the captured homes to the central pit. It is here Shulk has a vision of Ultheron shooting the face Mechon in a mobile artillery for falling into the lake of ether in the process. So Shulk tries to warn Ultheron, but changes his mind at the last moment, convinced Ultheron will not believe him. As such, Ultheron leaves the group impatiently to go ahead. Once they get to the base of the mine, they are surrounded by Mekon and their leader, the same faced Mekon that took Juju, who introduced himself as. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. How do you pronounce his name? It was Zord, right? Or Short? Yeah. Uh, wait, you said Short? or Okay, thanks. So, uh, Charlotte demands to know where Juju and the others are. Short replies, Juju, if you mean the brat, he's right here, pointing at a diamond shaped force field with an unconscious Juju trapped inside. As for the others, well, I just couldn't help myself. I ate them all up. Meanwhile, Othron sneaks into the chamber and overhears everything Shore just said. Enraged, Shulk, Rain, and Charlotte fight against uh, Shore, but Shore's strength proves overwhelming. Othron manages to sneak into a mobile artillery unit and fights Shore himself. Shulk, however, realizes that this is the place where Othron is to die and quickly thinks of a plan to save him. Ultheron, meanwhile, begins to push Shord into an ether river where he will disintegrate. In dedication to Gadult, Ultheron pushes Shord enough for him to fall in, but the unit begins to fall in as well. In the nick of time, Shulk comes with a mobile crane, which he uses to grab Ultheron. Suddenly, though, the unit suffers an explosion that begins to throw Ultheron into the river, much to Shulk's dismay. Fortunately, Rain runs up the crane and grabs Ultheron in midair. After discovering Shulk's power, Ultheron apologizes to Shulk for his behavior and thanks him. He then gives Charlotte Gadult's rival. With Juju also in hand, the group begins to head back to the refugee camp. But while going up an elevator, a severely weakened Shord suddenly attacks them. The group fights him again, this time defeating him. Just before he dies, he says that he now sees that Shulk is a hope. When Shulk acts what he means, Short ends up falling down the elevator shaft and exploding. The group comes outside to around the Bionis' waist, where they are suddenly confronted by a now-talking metal face and several other faced Mekon in identical appearance to Short. Metal face taunts Shulk about Fiora, and the group attacks him. However, the sheer number is overwhelming. Even though... Dixon and Dunbon nurse fully back to health and with an anti-Mechon weapon come to their aid. The Mechon continues suppressing them. Suddenly a mysterious bird, which Metalface and Dixon recognizes Atelithea, attacks the Mechon, wiping out most of them and injuring Metalface. Shokjin hits. Sok then hits Metalface with the Monado, causing a dent in the armor. At the same time, Shulk receives a vision in which he easily defeats Metalface. The Mechon then flee, and the Telethea goes along, coming over to a Holmes who asks about Shulk and gets good news. Shulk then tells the group about his vision, and Dixon deciphers that the vision takes place on Prison Island at the Bionis' head, where the presumed mystical High Entia are said to live. The group decides to go there next. Yeah, so to get to uh, Prison Island, Shulk, Rain, Dunban, Osaran, Charlotte, Juju, 
and Dixon head through Satori Marsh, a murky yet beautiful land at the Bionis' waste. When they get to a small post, they put set up camp, but uh, Schultz cannot sleep as he's too busy thinking about Fiora's death and his vision. Dixon finally uh, consults him. In the morning, the group gets up to the end of the marsh, but they have to get certain items to uh, a note for a nopon and defeat the Satori Guardian before they are able to pass. After doing so, Osteron and Juju leave to leave to go help out Colony Six, while Dixon heads back to uh, continue his travels. But as they leave, Dixon mut- mutters something about deceiving the group. After they leave, Shulk asks Dumbun to uh, have the Monado for some time, not feeling worthy of its power, but Dumbun tells him to keep it. The group continues on to the next point, Magna Forest. Meanwhile, far away on Mekonis, a silhouetted lady looks works for, uh, for a face Mekon, as whom she uh, refers to as Mayneth. So, um, deep in uh, Mac- uh, Magna Forest, a young girl and four soldiers, who appears to be her servants, fight a large telethea. The soldiers are killed, and the girl is depleted much of her ether, thus slipping into unconsciousness. Traveling through Machna Forest, the group finds the girl, and, re- and Shulk realizes she is present in the same vision. The group takes her under a tree, where Charlotte deciphers her con- condition and realizes she needs water ether crystals which can be found near waterfalls. Dunbon realizes there was a waterfall back at the entrance to Machna Forest, so Shulk decides to go back there alone. Arriving at the waterfalls and getting the proper crystals, Shulk is suddenly confronted by the homes that talked with the Telethea and who also appeared in Shulk's dream in Tefra Cage. The man reveals himself to be a simple homes named Alvis and reveals that Shulk has become famous among all the homes. They are suddenly attacked by a small band of Telethea. Shulk cockily tries to defeat him with his normal tactics and visions, but the Telethea seems to know all his moves and he is knocked down twice. Alvis uh, tells Shulk that Telethea can read people's minds and see all their moves, regardless of whether Shulk has a vision or not. The only way to defeat them is to purge this ability and attack them from there. Alvis goes as far as to pick up the Monado, unlock the symbol, and kill one of the Telethea. He and Shulk then destroy all the Telethea, but Alvis says they were merely Telethea spawn, and the real one was resting after being wounded by a girl. He then says that the Monado is capable of destroying the fabric of the universe's existence. Shulk asks how he knows so much about the Monado, and how can he use it. Before Alvis can say anything, Rain appears looking for Shulk, as Shulk has been away for a while. Shulk explains why, but when he turns around, Alvis has disappeared, causing Rain to believe he slept on the job and dreamt this guy up, although he and the rest of the group eventually believe him. Charlotte uses the ether crystals, reviving the girl. Shulk puts a hand on her arm to con- comfort her, causing her to slap him in retaliation. <laughs> she then introduces herself as Melia, but refuses to say why she is in the forest by herself and in the first place. Despite this, she decides to repay the group for rescuing her by showing them their way to the Bionis' head via the Ithriel Sea. To get there, the group has to go to Frontier Village, a city inside the tree where the comical, we're-talking furballs called the Nopon live. 
Strangely, the Nopon referred to Melia as Bird Lady. When inside, Melia tells the Nopon ruler, Chief Dunga, uh, to grant them access to the Ithril Sea and then leaves with a somber attitude. Concerned for her thoughts, Shulk goes to talk to her. Shulk meets up with Melia, who mutters to herself about a thing that escaped from her homeland and that she needs to destroy. Remembering Alvis' mention, uh, mentioning okay. the wound uh, Telethea, I'm sorry, <laughs> remembering, remembering that Alvis mentioned the wounded Telethea, Shulk confronts her about the topic and happens to be correct. He also tells her about how he defeated Telethea and also about his visions, although she doesn't believe the latter. Shulk and the rest of the group then offer to help her defeat the Telethea, but she rudely declines. Dunga, however, pesters her into it. And as a bonus, he'll even send the village's hero pawn, <laughs> their finest warrior, whom he is preparing at the moment to aid them. While at the, me- <laughs> While at the meeting place, Dunga introduces the hero pawn, Riki, to them in an extremely uh, funny scene. Although the group finds him useless at first sight, uh, he knows very little about the dino beak, and expects the um the group to get his equipment for him. It's later revealed that the only reason Riki is the hero pawn <laughs> is because if he does this quest, he will be forgiven of several I love debts of the community. At, <laughs> at least he knows a pl- <laughs> me too. It was great. <laughs> at least he knows a place where the Telethea could be a large um could be. Uh, a large batch of ether crystals deep in Machna Forest. So the group heads there first. Arriving at the area, the group discovers it's in ruins as Telethea has absorbed so much ether that the surrounding area falters in stability. As Melia starts pondering about the Monado's abilities, they are suddenly attacked by the Telethea. They manage to weaken it sufficiently, but in the middle of battle, they discover that the Telethea also has regenerative powers. The group is shocked at this revelation, and Amelia practically gives up on the spot. But Shulk reinstates confidence in herself, and she subsequently develops slight feelings for him. After a while, the Telethea absorbs so much energy that it implodes on the spot, making the mission a success. Back at the frontier village, the group begins to say goodbye to the forgiven Riki, but Dunga instead has Riki permanently join the group for Prison Island. The group also discovers that Riki is much older than they thought, having a wife named Oka and 11 children. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly awesome. (laughs) He's a stand-up guy. (laughs) As the group makes preparations, Amelia reveals that they will need imperial sanction by the High Enchian Empire to get to Prison Island. They get to Ethereal Sea via a pod shaped like a bubble that Rain finds uncomfortable.
<laughs> so upon uh, reaching uh, Admiral City, uh, the group gets their first glimpse at Prison Island, as well as the high entry in uh, capital, Alchemoth, which the group finds extremely spectacular in terms of its technology. They get to the front door of Alchemoth versus via transporters, which Rain also finds uncomfortable. When they get there, the group is met with some high entry guards that call uh, Malia Lady to, to the others' confusion. Malia goes through the guards and uh, tells the others to wait there while she gets them the aid they need. But after she leaves, more guards arrive, arrest the group, and imprison them in a fancy aerial room. Unaware of the group's arrest, Malia proceeds onward to meet with the Emperor and give the group san sanction. Um, as she heads there, she was told, shown to be wa watched by three disguised individuals. Her stepmother, Yuma, Yumiya's uh, servant, Tyria, who also always wears a mask and an advisor, Mauricia. Surprisingly, it is learned that Malia is actually the daughter of the High Entria uh, Emperor, Surian, and has a brother named Callian. She tells them of staying, uh, slaying the Talithia, and as a reward, Surian and Callian uh, make her next in line to the throne instead, much to her hesitation. Then she learns of the group's arrest, dumbfounding her. Callian explains that, according to a prophecy, the true heir to the Monado, Shulk, will use the sword to destroy the High Entia. Malia says Shulk would never do that, but Sorian has already sent the High Entia's chief advisor, the, the Divine Seer, to go interrogate them. In the prison, only Shulk remains convinced that Malia would never betray them. Then they meet the Divine Seer, who happens to be Alvis. Alvis finds them not guilty and allows them to roam around Alchemoth at their own leisure. Shulk tries to ask them about the Monado, but he leaves. With nothing else to do, Ricky tries to go find Malia, but instead they decide to help the High Entria guards with a rescue mission. While the group is away, Sorian and Callian prepare to meet uh, to get uh, Malia's inauguration ceremony ready. Yumiya, who is also Sorian's first consort and Callian's birth mother, uh, suggested the trial of the tomb, a ritual not used in centuries due to so many ancestors dying in the tomb, be used for the ceremony. Callian protests, but Sorian, seeing no other way, agrees, as does Malia. Yumiya tells Tyria her woes. She has always hated the Homs, believing them to be worthless and filthy, and has a desire to eliminate them, eliminate them from all contact with the High Entia. As Malia has some Homs blood in her, the second consort is always a Homs. Yumiya desires to assassinate her as well, even ordering Tyria to kill the group. Callian sees this take place, but apparently does not hear them, although he notes Tyria's mask. Succeeding in their mission, the group comes to the room to see if all the ta townsfolk gathered outside for what Rain thinks is a party and Shulk thinks is a ceremony. From the balcony, Sorian announces that Malia, who is wearing a garment that completely covers her body, is the new heir to the throne, much to the group's shock, except Dumban, who had guessed it, and that she will depart for the tomb immediately. After the ceremony ends, Shulk has a vision in which Malia is killed in an altar. After Shulk tells the group about the vision, the group is confronted by five women dressed just like Tyria. They attack the group, but the group quickly defeats them. Alvis arrives to help the group a bit late, and Callian does as well. 
Alice believes in women to be part of a supposed mythical terrorist group called the Bionite Order, who once served the Imperial family, but were presumably eradicated for, the, for their uh, extremism. After Callian remembers Yumiya's re uh, meeting with Tyria, Shulk tells him about his vision of Malia, who is being dropped off at the heavily booby-trapped tomb by Lorethia. Callian, due to high NT law, cannot permit the group from trying to save Malia, despite Rain's complaints. But Dumbum works his way around it by saying they are not under their law due to their hum citizenship. Albus takes them to the tomb. At the entrance, Shulk persists about the Monado. Albus tells him that he is a long line of divine seers, all of which can see the future and use the Monado. However, the visions all happen through a ritual as opposed to Shulk's sudden visions. Alvis interprets this as Shulk having greater power than the Seers. Alvis also says that the Monado's power comes from Aether, which it can manipulate. Just before they go in the tomb, Alvis also whispers, but the Bionis is stirring. Malia goes through a genetic analysis after pressing a button to see if she is a royal high Entia, and proceeds through the tomb. When the group gets to the same place, Rain curiously presses the same button and goes through the same genetic analysis. As he is a Homs, a trapdoor initiates under the entire group, causing them to fall a long way down a small down into a small pond. Malia, meanwhile, goes through all the challenges laid in front of her before coming to the burial place of her ancestor, the first emperor of the Antiqua line. There she encounters an artificial intelligence with the mindset of the first emperor, who tells her that he feels joy due to the fact that due to the fact that she is eighty percent Homs. And that she is the beats in, that she is to be the next empress and likely the last, but that she is the hope of the high Antia, something Saurian and Killian see as well. All this confuses Malia. Apparently, Malia's ancestors have long searched for a cure, cure to for a cure to some curse, and only a specific gene sequence, Malia will will relinquish them from it. After getting his approval. Tyria suddenly appears and attacks Malia. The entire group survives the fall, and they verbally attack Rain for pressing the button. Alvis settles the uh, uh, the uh, Alvis settles the uh, conflagration, saying that they can still reach Malia, though the distance will be longer. Going through the maze of the tomb, they encounter and defeat an oracle of Rufus. Here, Rain starts to complain. They finally come to a weakened Malia, where a weakened Malia is. Just as they arrive, a large Telethea appears above them, forcing the group to fight them both. After a long and brutal battle, Tyria ends up getting her mask knocked off, though her face is still not seen, and the Telethea absorbs too much ether. The group ends up in the blast radius, but Alvis uses mystical powers to absorb the explosion. As Shulk thanks Alvis, Tyria is revealed to have di disappeared. Malia, taking off her mask, thanks the group for saving her, and even cuddles a happy Ricky in her arms. Ah. <laughs> Malia goes to her father and brother with Alvis, and they tell what happened. Malia's coronation is then scheduled to a year following Sorian's death. The group, meanwhile, relaxes in their room. But Dumbin is curious why Malia is to be the next ruler instead of Callian after seeing Tyria's rejection of the idea. As they ponder it, Shulk is summoned before Sonny, Sorian. Sorian asks why the group wants to defeat the Mechon, and Shulk tells him. 
Sorian then tells Shulk, uh, Sorian then tells Shulk that the Mechon invasion is depleting the Ether levels and Bionists, and that according to an ancient prophecy, the Monado is the sword that will save the people. He thus grants the group sanction to assault the Mechon. Shulk then asks to go to Prison Island, but Sorian says that an ancient secret that even the Imperials do not know completely about is located there, and no one is allowed to in there in order to avoid negatively disturbing the secret. Shulk reluctantly obliges. Sorian then asks one more thing as a father. He asks Shulk to remain Malia's friend forever, which Shulk gra- gladly accepts. Malia is then announced as being part of is being next in line to all of Alchemoth. As this happens, Charlotte wonders if Malia's true persona is that of the frail girl they met in Magna Forest or the formal prison princess they know now. Shulk says she is both, although with uncertainty. Uh, meanwhile, Lorothea and Alvis okay. go over a plan. So, um, one month earlier, Alvis showed Sorian a vision of the future. The vision, connected with Shulk's big vision, has the group fighting Mekon, only for Sorian to die. On Mekonus in the present day, uh, Venia meets with an obscured figure that orders a strike on Prison Island. Some mass-produced faces, led by Metalface, head there immediately. Metalface starts taunting a smaller silver Mekon, the same one Venia was working on earlier, along the way. They encounter the High Enchia's anti-Mechon aerial tanks and engage them in combat. Desiring to see Melia, the group decides to go hang out with her at her humble Imperial village. There they meet her, now with her tiny wings fully exposed, and start talking with her. After the group admires the Vila's garden, Melia explains to them the marital practice of the Imperial family. For some reason, all emperors are required to have a polygamy with two women. One a high Enchia, in this case Yumia, who was Kalian's mother, and the other a Holmes, in this case Melia's mother, who died years before the events of the game. However, the practice of marrying a Holmes has generated controversy among the racist high Enchia, so Melia, due to her mixed blood, is forced to wear her full body garments whenever she is in public. Melia then invites the group to a banquet, which they gladly accept. As she leaves to go make preparations, Shulk has a vision to the one that Alvis showed Sorian in the latest flashback, and with the same outcome. This horrifies the unexpecting Shulk, who quickly tells this to everyone. They quickly leave to go stop her, after discovering the Mechon are attacking. Unfortunately, Sorian has already left to go to Prison Island. There he intends to create a large barrier that will protect Alchemoth and greatly weaken the invading Mechon. However, to do this, he must disturb the secret kept inside Prison Island. The barriers created works very well. As it is made, the secret is revealed, which is a member of an ancient, long-thought extinct species known as a giant, who greets Sorian as he already knows him. The group finds Kalian, who grimly tells them that Sorian has already departed. Dunbon tries to work his way around Kalian again so they can save Sorian, but faces harsher resistance. Melia promptly gives them sanction. After the group unlocks the way to get into Prison Island and defeats one of the oldest creatures on Bionis, the Sky Ray, they go to the island where they come to a huge door blocked by a spell. They see a statue which is said to be what High Enchia looked like in their earliest days, but Rain and Riki, much to the latter's horror, realize that the statue looks a lot like Telethea. 
After Melia breaks the seal via another genetic analyst, the group proceeds through the door, but then Shulk sees another vision in which he is with the giant Saurian um, is with right now, and the giant decides to let the shackles be released. Shulk tries to tell the group, but they cut him off. The group goes to the very pinnacle of Prison Island, where Saurian is with the giant. The giant reveals himself to be Zanza, the creator of the Monado. He then asks Shulk if he wants him to unlock the Monado for him so that he can damage me- uh, face the faced Mekon. Shulk agrees, and the Monado changes appearance slightly, becoming significantly more powerful, and becomes known as the Monado too. Then Metal Face comes out of nowhere and launches a trident at Zanza, killing him. Metal Face proceeds to explain their use of ether to disintegrate matter to make killing easier. Saurian catches Metal Face off guard and uses his staff to assault him with the island's anti-Mekon defense system. Metal Face falls to the ground and Saurian hugs Melia. But to his surprise, Metal Face rises back up and Saurian pulls Melia out of the way right before being killed by Metal Face. Shulk, angered that Metal Face killed Saurian, lunges forward with all his strength and attacks uh, Face Nemesis. It is revealed that piloting the Face Mekon was none other than Fiora, who had apparently survived the incident of Colony 9 and had no recollection of any of them to Shulk's disappointment. Metal Face and Face Nemesis then fly away, leaving the group all shocked. Before Saurian dies, he says that this is how it was supposed to be. After he dies, Melia is now the Empress of the High Enchia. Alvis talks to what may be the spirit of Zanza, whose corpse has disappeared. He may vaguely mentions how he could have filled in for Zanza. And, sorry to say, but we are stopping it here for this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> This is a uh, game with a lot of story. So, uh, yeah, we're going to stop it about halfway through. And uh, this will be the first part. And uh, we will be recording the second part shortly. So, uh, yeah, uh, join us again for the next episode where we will complete Xenoblade Chronicles. Um, Is there uh, anything you want to add, Elisa? To this? um, Hmm. Not really, except that I just, I, <laughs> I accept that that's quite a twist that happens at the end here. <laughs> I yeah. remember when I played it, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good cliffhanger to go out on. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And uh, we will learn more later. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of amazed by uh, just what, what even happens in the first half of the game. It like goes so many places, and uh, you know, from, from, uh, you know, um, when I, when I think back, you know, everything that happens on Colony Nine really like sticks out in my head. Yeah, and uh, you know. Everything that happens, um, you know, with the uh, Talithia, like, really, really sticks out of my head. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I feel like those are kind of like the big things that happen in uh, in the first part of the game. So, 
yeah, there's and there's a lot more memorable stuff to be coming. So, um, yeah, we're not going to wait, make you wait very long. We will uh, record the follow up pretty soon. Um, before we end, is there anything that you want to plug? Um, well, I guess in general, I'll plug, um, the website that I write for, um, cause I mentioned earlier that I wrote a review for this, um, the 3DS version of this game. Um, so I write for Dual Shockers, uh, and it's a video game website, um, uh, and very independent. And we have some really great coverage. Of course, we have our news, but we also have tons of editorials, interviews, reviews, previews um we actually have one coming up uh which we're ranking the top 50 games of this decade so you know if you're oh wow yeah so that was very extensive Uh, a lot of infighting (laughs) 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 a lot of hurt feelings but (laughs) so any any spoilers you can uh share or um not really spoilers. Honestly, if you if you just look at the list of games um that this past that de- you know that were released this past decade, I think our list makes sense. Like I knew for a fact that most of the stuff I like wasn't gonna make it on like the top, like even really the top fifty, let alone the top ten. <laughs> so <laughs> but you know, honestly, because we, we we judged it by the impact that these games had on overall on gaming right so that was a huge factor so i think regardless of how you may feel about some of the ordered things i think overall it's an incredibly solid list and when you see it it makes a lot of sense why we uh pick certain games to go in which order so i just i really hope you enjoy it it'll be coming out soon um if it hasn't already and uh you know, definitely just go on our website, uh, dualshockers.com, and you know you can check that out and basically everything else. So, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put some bets down that uh, Dark Souls and uh, Breath of the Wild are on there. <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about making. I'm not, you know, I don't write for a video game site, but I've been thinking about, you know, just on my blog, uh, you know, uh, making my own. Uh, you know, top games of the decade. And I would definitely put Dark Souls and Breath of the Wild on there. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, just, just uh, you know, because of uh, who I am, I'd probably put uh, Shin Megami Tensei 4 on there. Yeah, well. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a few other games that, you know, as far as talking about impacts, you know, probably uh, wouldn't uh, when uh... <laughs> it wouldn't count. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it it would be more of my uh, my uh, favorite games of uh, the past decade. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I think I'm going to do that for the hell of it. Just you know, because why not? Yeah, um, exactly. It's fun. Yeah, totally, totally, and you know it. It, though though it pains me that we are at the end of another decade um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah it's it's a fun to, fun thing to do um as for me i want to uh plug uh, uh me and lisa's uh other podcast mega 10 marathon which is a game by game journey through uh the shimogami tensei games 
Um, we are currently uh, in the midst of doing a Digital Devil Saga, but uh, you know, I'm uh, just putting this out there as uh, you know, kind of a uh, you know, get get people hyped and excited. After that, we're going to be doing uh, Persona Three. Um, nice. Which everybody uh, kind of, uh, you know, I feel I feel like Persona Three is the one that's like the least decisive. <laughs> yeah, I think so. People, people love that game. Even people who hate Persona Four and Five love Persona yeah. Three. Um, exactly. Which is why, you know, if- which is why I want to get Fletch on those episodes because he hates Four and Five, but he loves Three <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> uh fletch being a uh com- a common guest he's like he's like our secret uh non uh non-official fourth fourth guest <laughs> exactly. um and uh yeah as far as a uh, combo chain stuff goes uh it would be great if you rated and reviewed us on itunes we still don't have a single review it's very sad um and then also i'd like to mention that uh we do have a patreon uh for both uh mega 10 marathon and uh combo chain it's uh at patreon.com backslash mirror image mirror image studios um we are not doing this to uh become a rich uh rich uh patreon gods we are just doing this to uh <laughs> cover the cost of uh uh our hosting and uh, exactly <laughs> and uh recording uh and uh you know maybe if we uh make enough money uh you know we can uh kick some money to the hosts who have to you know occasionally buy these games so uh that that's a dream that's a dream <laughs> so yeah any <laughs> anything you can uh donate if you can only do- donate one dollar or five dollars uh you are much much appreciated so yeah that's uh patreon.com mirror image studios and mega 10 marathon that's easy to find mega 10 marathon.com uh combo chain is also on uh facebook and twitter uh you know, uh, just look up for the obvious uh, combo chain on Facebook and Twitter. You will find it. And uh, yeah, I think I'm done with the plugs. Um, <laughs> this is where a special sign off uh, would be, but I don't have that. But uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Lisa. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's always a pleasure. I love, you know, being on these podcasts, chatting with you, getting to delve into games that I love. So, you know, thanks for having me on board. Uh, I can't wait to be back for the second part of Xenoblade Chronicles and hopefully any of the future games that uh, you plan on doing. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's it's always a pleasure and it's so great to podcast with you. So uh, thank thanks, uh, thanks for being on. And uh, everybody who's listening, thank you so much for listening. Um, so, yeah, until next time, uh, yeah, have a uh, great holidays. And, uh, yeah, we will see you soon with the rest of Xenoblade Chronicles. Yeah, take care.